Hello, and welcome to episode 43 of the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Thank you very much for listening in and or viewing. Today, we add another episode to the In the C-Suite series. Our guest today is Patrick Cothey, CEO of EM Device Lab. Have you ever heard of a standard procedure being productized? You will today. It is a great strategy. EM Device Lab is a Texas-based startup that is preparing for its first product launch in less than 30 days. What I'm learning from the C-suite interviews is that every C-suite executive is in a different situation with its own unique challenges. This is very interesting. Today, we will explore with Patrick the key characteristics of a successful startup CEO, key strategic steps that they have taken to be positioned for success, and how to get to commercial launch on fumes, and what he has learned from failure. Don't be fooled by Patrick's calm voice and demeanor. He is a driver. Most of you know that I'm the host of the MedTech Leaders community. You can learn more about this community at medtechleaders.net. It is a place where MedTech leaders and those aspiring to be leaders get together to help each other out with best practices, problems, solutions, ideas, and successes. Again, you can learn more at medtechleaders.net. There is a 30-day free trial. Also, I want to remind listeners that I do not get compensated by the people that I interview. I select the subject matter and the people I interview to be sure that I am providing the listeners with information that is helpful and interesting. If you like this podcast and videocast, please be sure to rate it, recommend it to a friend, subscribe. In the show notes, you will find a link to Pat's LinkedIn profile, the website of the company, and his favorite book. On that note, let's get together with Patrick Cothey and learn what it's like to be the CEO of a startup on the verge of commercialization. Pat, it's really great to have you on the podcast and videocast today. I'm, I'm really excited to learn more about what your role is, how you got there, EM Device Lab, and, and also your podcast. So if you don't mind giving us just a brief description of you know, EM Device Lab and what your role is there. Sure. Ted, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, really enjoy what you're doing and the emphasis and the expertise that you're bringing into marketing professionals is really a great thing for the industry. So, so again, thanks, thanks for having me on. Really looking forward to a great, great discussion. So EM Device Lab is, is a startup company and we're getting ready to launch a new product that's for treating abscesses. And it's, it's really a, a different way of doing it that provides uh, benefits to the clinician and the patient. What we're, what we're really doing is we're eliminating the need for revisits uh, after abscesses are treated, which is a great thing for the patients. It's a great thing for the healthcare providers because 
extra visits aren't reimbursed. And so it's a great, great thing for payers as well. So in, in addition to that, it uh, lessens the complication rate. It actually drops the complication rate of the procedure in half. Mm-hmm. So it's more efficacious. It, it's, uh, it's great from a, from a cost standpoint, and it's also less painful for the patient. So we really are, are very excited about bringing this technology uh, to market. So it actually started, uh, or the, the idea came from a couple of my partners, uh, one, one partner who was an ER physician, and uh, they were treating, treating abscess patients with a, with a different technique. And he says, hey, I can could, I could do this better. Uh, so uh, it really came from, cl- from the clinical side. And as we know, within the medical device field, most of the great ideas come from the docs. So uh, it really co- came up from the clinical side. And, uh, and, and, and really, uh, we've developed a product based on a boatload of, of, of information and uh, feedback from clinicians about the design of the product, the need for the product, and what the product uh, can do uh, with the patient. So we're, we're really excited about, uh, about bringing this product to market. And your role? I'm the CEO. This was really started with uh, the founders of the company were uh, two ER physicians and, and one biomedical uh, engineer. And uh, I was advising them about how to form the company and you know, some, of the, some of the company foundation things. I was CEO of another company uh, startup at, uh, at the time, but I was kind of uh, helping out to uh, get this company launched because I thought it was really a, a really great idea. And the, the ER physicians are trained to do medicine. They're not trained to do startup things. So kind of helping them along uh, along there. And then about a year later, I joined us as CEO. They were not going to be moving out of their clinical practice. So we really needed to take the company and, and move it forward, bring, bring the product out. So that's, that's when I joined. Okay. So it's really interesting about this. <clears throat> company and your role is that it's a single product company with an absolutely new concept of treating uh, an issue in the emergency room. So it's a new concept product, one product company. And because of the nature of the product, it's not a super huge regulatory hurdle nor a really long runway to launch. Am I correct? Well, in, in many, many of the things you said, I'm going to uh, correct it a little bit. Okay. So the, there's two ways that people treat abscesses today. Probably about 85% of the abscesses are treated what they call incision and drainage. What an abscess is, is it's an infection under the skin that fills with pus. Uh, that, that's, that's what it is. And what you want to do is you want to get that pus out. And the, the way that it's done is you take a scalpel and you make a one to two inch incision in the skin and you drain the pus out of it. Uh, and, and then it's an empty cavity. Uh, so that empty cavity needs to heal, need to get air in there. So you need to keep that open because if you don't keep it open, then it, it reinfects, uh, f- fills back up. So the way it's kept open is you put gauze inside of it. And just, you know, just gauze. Yeah, so you jam that gauze in there. And once that's in, you have to take it out. Anyone who's, who's had that done will tell you how painful that is. You're mm-hmm. yanking it out of the open wound and you're putting, you know, shoving some more in and you're yanking it out every day. It's just not a, not a very pleasant, to do, uh, pleasant thing to do. But that's what's gone on for hundreds of years. 
Uh, but about 15, uh, 15 years ago, somebody invented a new way of doing it, where instead of making one big large incision, we're making two small incisions, and then snaking a piece of plastic through there and, and making a loop out of that plastic. So it could be a vessel loop or a rubber band type of, type of product where you're just making a loop in there. And instead of jamming that, uh, that gauze in, you just keep it open by, by that piece of plastic and, and the openings around that piece of plastic. You just move that, move that tube around a couple times a day and that keeps air flowing in there and keeps it, keeps it going in. So what we do is we've taken that loop technique and we've made, we productized it because there wasn't a product associated with it. So we, we've made it so it now goes in just like a suture. It's designed for it. It's one, you know, one piece of piece of equipment that you, you can do that as opposed to what's going on with 15% of the people that are doing this right now. They have to kludge together a system to do that. So we've got a, a system that's that's ready to go uh, to, to do this procedure. Now, why that's important for us is what we've got is we've got a, 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 a product that already has clinical data. So clinical, you know, we're, we do loop procedure and okay. there's already data for the loop procedure. So we already know that the data exists, that it cuts failure rate in half, that you have smaller incisions, patients like it better. We've just productized it a little bit different. So we can leverage that same clinical data because it's in the same category that we have, but we've got a, the first product to really take advantage of this. So we're looking at you know, moving that 15% of the market uh, that's doing the loop procedure because this one's easier to do that have already bought into the concept. This one's easier, but 85% of the market is virgin territory. So that's, and, and that's where the, the real benefit comes in because you're cutting the failure rate down and it's a heck of a lot easier uh, on the patient and the healthcare system to not be able to do those, uh, those revisits. Awesome. Well, thanks for that clarification. I think that's really interesting and, and important that you productized something that sort of existed, which definitely gives you a leg up in terms of acceptance in the marketplace. Uh, but it's also a big hint to other people that are looking at problems out there that need to be solved. The problem may be somewhat solved, but in a, in a kludgy way, in a, in an, in a not so convenient way. And if you can productize it, that's a great way to get to market with something. I, I really uh, couldn't agree with you more, Ted. There, there are incremental improvements out there that are not incremental opportunities. They're really some large opportunities. Our, our market is about a billion dollars, but that's divided between medical vet and, and uh, dentistry. Uh -huh. uh, there's, there's some applications, uh, applications that way. So it's a, it's a substantial market. It's a simple device. It's a, it's a 510K exempt product. It's a needle with a blade on the back. So you've got, got a needle with an 11 blade that's really on the back of that needle and then a piece of extruded tubing that has fenestrations in it so you can flush you know, things through. And then, and then at the back end, there's a, there's a lure lock uh, and, 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 a, and a way to attach that uh, kind of a hub. There's a way to attach the tubing together to make, to make one loop. So it's a very simple extruded tube, piece of plastic, and a needle blade on there. But there's some IP around it as well. And there's also some real uh, trade secrets. And making that needle with a blade on the back of it is not as easy as, as, as one might think. 
But from a regulatory standpoint, it's a simple regulatory pathway. It's a relatively simple uh, device to, uh, to, uh, to manufacture. And what's really critical here is it's simple to train. That is something that in, in your experience, my experience, um, you know, I've been in the heart valve industry, I've been in angioplasty, been in ECG, transcranial Doppler ultrasound, really complex things. And when you have complex devices, it means long sales times. It means more training. And with a simple device, it, it translates into easier training and easier adoption. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you for that. Now that we understand that a little bit better, and we're going to go back to what you're doing with at EM Device Lab, especially in terms of what you've built there and the experience that brought you there and so on. But I don't want to go any further without talking about your podcast because you've got a podcast. It's relatively new. I think you've got around nine episodes out, if I'm correct. And it's a great podcast. So tell us about uh, the podcast, Mastering Medical Device. Sure. Uh, as your listeners know, podcasts are really interesting because you can dig into topics a little, a little bit deeper. It's not, it's not five minutes. You can, you can go into, in, into a topic uh, a little bit longer. I've been in the, in the medical device industry, and I love the medical device industry. I've been, been in it for you know, 35, going on 40 years now. And it's, it's my passion professionally. And through the years, you know, I've had a lot of different experiences, but I've also uh, talked with a lot of people that are that are uh, coming up and they want to learn more about the industry. And I've really tried to, to give back my knowledge as well. So what this podcast is all about is it's a more well-rounded educational opportunity for people with, within the industry. Because Ted, your, your podcast is fantastic. You go deep on the marketing side of things. And that, that is absolutely necessary. Anybody who's in a, dis, uh, in a discipline needs to go deep into that discipline. There are other podcasts that are out there that go deep into, into uh, regulatory, go deep into clinical, go into quality systems, into sales. And those are great. But what I'm trying to do with, with mastering medical devices is to give people an opportunity to learn about everybody else. So, so it's not just marketing where you've got marketing people talking about marketing, but marketing people need to know about sales. They need to know the topics about sales. They need to know about regulatory, about clinical, about R&D. They need to know the topics that are going on in those areas as well, because it'll make you a better marketer. And in addition to that, you may be in the ophthalmology. Okay, thank you. Appreciate yes. that. Uh, you you may be in cardiology. You may be in in uh, in ortho, and you may not know what's going on in the other areas. And there are things that you can beg, borrow, and steal from other areas within the medical uh, device um, arena that are not being used in your area too. So what I'm trying to do with podcasts is give people exposure to other segments within your own company, uh, other functional areas within your own company, other segments within the industry, and also a heavy dose of what's going on with customers. Because that's why we're all here too, and better understanding what our customers are doing. So that, that's what we're trying to do with the, with the Mastering Medical Device podcast. Perfect. So it's called Mastering Medical Device, 
and you, I know I found it and subscribed to it on Apple. So I'm sure it's available on Spotify and wherever you get your podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, mastering medical device. And I've listened to a couple of them. I really, um, uh, enjoyed the one with the gal that was working in the orthopedic space in the operating room. Is that, was that correct? That she yes. was in the, yep. Yeah. Yep. Because it was like being taken back into the operating room. And I have, I spent a lot of my career in the operating room, but things have changed because you really asked her for some detail. And I, I enjoyed being taken back in there and thinking about that in, in, ter- in terms of, you know, some of the work, the consulting work and stuff I do today. So anyway, good job. Well, I, think I, I think one of the things that, that we we all need to learn uh, is that we need to con- continue to learn because, you know, a lot of times, you know, we get a, a few years on us and we say, well, I already know that or I already know that. Well, you don't know what it's like today. So I've, I've got a sales background, but it's been years since I carried a bag. Today's sales is different than than when I was selling or, or when I was marketing. Uh, so it, it's, it always evolves. And to keep yourself up to date is just, it's vital for, for all of us. And it's vital for us to know what, what's going on within other functional areas of your company, because that'll, that'll just make you a, a stronger team player. Absolutely. Okay. So let's move on. And we sort of understand the framework of where you are now and what you're doing. But let's talk a little bit about how you got there and some of the important things you learned along the way. So could you just give us um, a brief synopsis of your career? Sure. As I said, I, I started off carrying a bag. Spent the spent my first year selling office copiers. That's that that that's a fun way to get into anything. The straight commission jobs and and uh, knocking on doors. So uh, started off there, but then I, I quickly moved into into the medical area. Started off with American Hospital Supply, uh, critical care division, which was primarily a pharmaceutical division. But what was what was really interesting for me there is they had a joint venture with American Edwards. And so we were uh, JVing with the Swan Gans catheter, and that was that was the, my introduction into medical device. And what I found out about myself very early is I'm a device guy. Pharma it didn't sit well with me. Um, selling conceptual molecules that wasn't me. Uh, I liked having a device where you could put it in your hands, you can romance it, you can talk about it, you can you know, really put it in the physician's hands and and have the physician look at it, touch it, feel it. That's, that's what kind of got, got me and grabbed me. So I started selling, moved up, uh, up the sales ladder, became a product specialist and regional sales manager, uh, director of sales uh, for, for the U.S., and then transitioned over, over into marketing, went up the, uh, up the marketing uh, ladder as well, and then kind of moved into into management or executive management. Uh, so I've been, you know, the industries I've been in have been in radiology, cardiology, cardiothoracic surgery, spent 10 years in the heart valve market, and then kind of moved into the startup world doing uh, ECG algorithms. And then uh, founded a company that uh, was dealing with technology for, for identifying and monitoring concussions and then uh, moved uh, moved over into uh, EM device lab. Okay, excellent. And along this path, especially 
early in your career, you were carrying the bag and then you were starting to get your sales management positions, sales leadership positions. Was there any time that you thought, I want to be an executive leader or did, when did that occur to you that, so not necessarily a startup leader, but just an executive leader, when did that start moving around in your brain that, gee, maybe I could be an executive leader? It, it took a little bit to, to really come together. I think when you're first in, in any business, you're just trying to get your feet underneath you. Uh, you're just trying to, trying to master what you're responsible for. So in the sales side of things, you know, you're, you're just trying to learn the medical business, learn how to sell. And then w- once you do that, you say, okay, well, geez, you know, my boss is, is doing this. I think I'd like to be a regional sales manager. And you kind of move there. And then as, as you get experience and master, yeah, okay, now I, now I can start to see that I'd like to progress and, and do some different things. And, and different things open, kind of open up to you. When I was in sales and moving up the sales ladder, I really was focused on sales. That that you know, it's just moving up in the in the sales progression. When I moved into marketing, that's when things kind of moved in a different direction for me, because I, I what I really enjoy about marketing is it touches all aspects of the business. You're dealing with the salespeople. You've got you've got upstream responsibilities, so you're dealing with R and D people. You're dealing with the finance people, the executive management of the company. So I always viewed myself as the hub of the wheel because I'm dealing with everybody around here to to bring new products in, to service existing products, and you've got the financial component. Uh, the business as well. So I, that's that's kind of where I considered myself to be uh, someone who's uh, responsible for more than just a functional area. I considered myself to be responsible more for the business uh, of it, even though I, I knew I had my own my own area, but I was touching every every everywhere else and was involved with other things. So when I when I moved into marketing and kind of said, okay, I can I can do this. And I can move up in, in responsibility to be able to take on take on you know, the role. Right. And I think another interesting thing about what you're explaining about marketing is that in addition just to working with all these different functions, you're seeing how they all come together to make the company work. You know, whether the company is doing a great job at it or not, that's that's a different thing. But the fact that you can, it's like being at the heartbeat of a company, the fact that you can see all the functional things working together to bring together the end result gives you a terrific view of what's going on. You're absolutely right. And you are helping to make those decisions as well. So you're you're framing the the product. Uh, you're, you're, you're dealing with the systems for R&D, you're, you're coming up with the what outcomes should be for the clinical trials. You're going down the financial planning uh, of the product. So you, you've got that. So I, like I said, I, I consider myself to be at the hub of the wheel. And I, I think that marketing is in a great position to be able to take a, a leadership position in the company because you've got exposure and not only exposure, but you're learning what other functional areas do, and you're learning the things that go right and go wrong, and you're learning how those other people are 
uh, behaving within your organization too. So I think there's some good learning that's taking place about how you can get things done within your organization based on dealing with everybody and the personalities that you're dealing with as well. Exactly. Yeah, that's another great point. So in this career path, this career process that you're following, when did you start thinking startups, you know, being entrepreneurial? I mean, there's a lot of things you can do, even in a large corporation that are entrepreneurial. You can take an entrepreneurial approach to them. But where along this line did it, a little bell go off in your head that, gee, maybe I'd be interested in working in a startup environment and leading a startup team? The first idea that really came to me was back when I was uh, in sales and marketing uh, back in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, involved with uh, catheters in, in cardiology. And I saw a product that I thought was extremely interesting for closing um, Peg Farima Valley's uh, 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 heart defect. And uh, I saw that and I thought, boy, it's a pediatric device and big companies typically don't want to go after pediatric indications. But I thought, boy, I could build a company based on pediatric cardiac devices. So I started having some discussions with the inventor of the product to see if we could do it. So, so that was kind of the first time that I thought, I, I want to investigate this startup side of things. Then in another company, I had another idea for another type of product, started to investigate that, but I didn't take, take the jump out of big company and, and to do that. And part of it is, is timing in your life. I'm father of four. Uh, you know, you're, raised, you're raising a family, and those types of um, decisions should not be taken lightly because you're not only affecting you, but you're affecting everybody else out there. And I'd never been a CEO before. I'd never raised money before. I didn't know what you know what what the process was. So you have these ideas of doing it, but being to, able to take that jump out is a big jump. And you have to understand everything about that in order to make a good decision for you and your family. I mean, I went down with one idea. I wrote the business plan. You know, I was doing it. I'm, I'm you know, still employed, but I was doing it on weekends, writing a business plan, doing everything I possibly could to learn everything I possibly could and decided that that particular one wasn't right. It wasn't worth it to jump out with that much risk for that product. It turned out to be a good decision that I, that I didn't do that. But then it took a few more years for it to, to really uh, come in where I did, did my own. So I really, as an entrepreneur, you really have to look at where you are in, in your life and understand what it means to be in a startup. Because it, everyone always looks at, oh, geez, look at this guy's in a startup and he made a gazillion dollars. Well, guess what? Nine out of the 10 startups don't. And it's painful. There is pain, you know, emotional and financial pain when you are not successful. So living you know, the, the startup life is a different life. And it's, it's, it's completely um, uh, different than the big company life. 
I agree with you 100%. I worked for a couple startups, one of which probably contained one of the best teams uh, I ever worked with in my career. And they ultimately failed for a number of reasons that um, they didn't have entire control over, possibly some control over in, in terms of reading the market and so on. But um, And I was gone before they went bankrupt, but it was a terrific team of people and they did a, a great job. But in terms of actually being a leader of the startup, when I worked for that startup, I was, I don't know, maybe the... 35th or 40th person brought in or something like that. And they had not gone commercial. All the, all the employees were regulatory, clinical, you know, um, research, R&D, all this kind of stuff, pilot manufacturing. And I thought, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm working in a startup. Nope, not, it's not the same. It wasn't until I started my own company that I still have where I, I sell some uh, scientific equipment. Um, as part of what I do. And that's when I really, really realized all the risks that you're taking, you know, and, and everything that can go wrong and the costs of it and so on and so forth. That's, that's when I finally would start looking up to people that started companies and thinking, wow, I think I better understand what they've been through. There's a difference in a startup that's already funded versus one that isn't. Yeah. And I think that's that's really the, the the main thing because if you're if you're in a startup and you've got 10 million in the bank, payroll isn't isn't an issue and you're you're progressing along you know, a long pathway to getting a product out, yeah, well you're already in a company. But if if you're the founder of a company with no dollars and you're trying to put together the plan and hit your milestones and raise money, that's a different animal. That, that is a different animal. And, and many times uh, when, when we talk about startups, we really have to define you know, what we're talking about because many times it is the funded startup that's, that you know, may need some marketing people, may need some salespeople, may need, you know, so you're, you're progressing along. The true startups where you're, with the, with the the napkin and you've got the idea and you've got to sell the idea and you've got to figure out what the needs are and you've got to figure out what you know what functions you need to bring in at what time you need to do a full financial plan for it you need to to do diligence on on the IP you need to do diligence on the on the regulatory side of things all of these things early on are just risk upon risk upon risk upon risk. And if you're joining once it's already been funded and all that risk has been taken out, that's a different jump than the true true beginning of the startup. Yeah, I'd agree with you 100%. And then what do you think are the key characteristics of being a CEO in a startup environment? And I know that's sort of a wide-ranging question because you could be the CEO of a, like you said, a startup that's on the verge of getting fifty million dollars of funding because it's some breakthrough drug or something like that, or you could be the startup of a relatively simple medical device that is going to save a lot of people a lot of trouble, 
create much better results, but still it's relatively simple um, and has a shorter runway in some respects. But still, what are some of the key characteristics that you have to have as a CEO to, to, to be successful? Ted, I, I think there's a lot of different ways that you can obtain where you know the end goal there's a lot of different ways to get there and you, but it's going to require thing different things for different people let me explain what I, what I mean I come I come at this with a lot of experience mm-hmm. okay I've got I've got I've got experience in sales marketing big companies small companies a lot of different a lot of different technologies I've uh, been either launched or been on teams that have launched over 50 devices I know the space. I, I know the doctors. I know a lot of the issues. I've dealt with the regulatory, clinical, you know, anywhere from you know, class one, class three devices. So I've got, I'm coming at it with a lot of experience. But there's a lot of things that I don't know too. So from, from somebody with a lot of experience, I, personally, I think experience is good because it, if you've got that experience, you should be able to shortcut a lot of, a lot of things because you've seen it before and you'll validate that it's still the same way it is, but you're not going to run into a lot of problems that people without experience don't have. That doesn't mean that if you if you don't have experience, you can't get there too. You just better be really open to a lot of people giving you a lot of advice and you better be seeking that uh, if you don't have the experience. So you can get there without the experience, you, but it's going to take drive to get there. Yeah, that, that is, you know, obvious, you know, one of the, one of the obvious ones, it's going to take drive and perseverance. It's going to take, you know, uh, somebody who's, who can identify talent and bring that talent and, and put, and give the vision to the company to say, this is what we're trying to do. This is how we're trying to get there. It takes, a, a team mentality because in a startup, yeah, you're CEO. Well, what does that mean? Okay, well, you're a team member. Uh, you're you're a team member, and you've got a role to play, just like everybody else, everyone else has a role to play. But it's it's not an ego thing. It's you know, here's our team, and here's how we're trying to get this this shared goal together. And I need to bring the right people in that aren't worried about you know. Their 401k aren't worried about you know just uh, you know company politics. All they want to focus on is is getting is getting the product product done. So it's it's kind of a, a interesting question because you can you can get there a lot of different ways. To me, it it, it really is knowing exactly who you are and what you don't have and being open to filling that up with expertise of others. Because if you try and do it yourself, you're going to fail. You have to bring other areas of uh, other people's expertise into it. If you don't, if you've never raised funds, you need somebody to help you to guide you through that process. If you've never done regulatory, you better get a specialist. If you've never done quality or manufacturing or supply chain, you better get some help in there. So I, to, to me, I think that that is one of the key things with, with an entrepreneur and with a CEO of a company is recognizing what you don't know and being humble and being humble enough to say, I don't know, help me. Right. And you have to be willing to work without a lot of resources. That's, that's a given. 
Absolutely. Is you know that you don't you don't have uh, the mothership uh, that's that's going to bail you out when you when you make a mistake uh, when you run out of money. You know all of those things. You don't have a mothership to go back to. Uh, you have to solve the problem yourself. And, yeah, you're going to. Be- I, I think we've all had this. You know, you're you're running down to the post office. You're typing your own memos. You're 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 doing your own powerpoints. Well, I was the uh, president of a U of an Israeli, um, the U.S. operation for an Israeli company, a startup, and in the U.S. office we had three people. So I took my turn cleaning the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. So you just have to. You can't have an ego that does not allow you to do those things. You have to do it. I, I, another thing I'd go back to, especially about your career, and you and I talked a little bit about this in our uh, pre- preparatory discussions, is the value of the large company experience in in the career as a foundation for so many other, so many things in the career, but also the things you learn in a couple large companies about how processes work. You know, um, so when you are in charge of a startup, you can actually see many steps ahead as to what will need to be put in place as the company continues to make progress and prosper. Would you agree? Oh, you're absolutely right, Ted. I am part of different startup ecosystems, and I get a lot of students, people are just graduating, say, I want to do startups. Because for some reason, uh, they're, they're teaching entrepreneurship within yeah. universities and everybody wants to be an entrepreneur and they come to me, Hey, I want to work in a startup. And well, you know, I can appreciate you doing it, but my suggestion is that you go to a big company and get some foundations done. And if you want to jump out in two, three years, jump out and, and do that, but you've got to learn certain things. You're coming out of college. You know, we've all done it. We've been, been in college and we know how, how enthusiastic, but, um, uh, unskilled we are when we actually graduate. Uh, just learning how to go to a meeting, learning how to talk to a physician, learn, learning what a, what a performance uh, evaluation looks like, learning, learning how to work with other, other people, all you know, some real basic things within the company and then within your own area, I mean, what does a product manager do? What does a what does a director of marketing do? What does a what does a, a process engineer do versus an R and D engineer? What does you know what does manufacturing have? So just just getting exposure to some of this stuff uh, as a company in general, and then your own functional area. It's how do you do business? You know, what is what is the you know what is the function that you're trying to do? Because if if I'm hiring somebody in a startup company, let me tell you, I, I don't have time to go back and teach them how to how to tie their shoes. I mean, that, 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 that that's not what we need. Resources are so tight within a startup. You have to have somebody that 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 knows what they're doing. Because I don't have the time to teach people. All, all types of, of little things. So that's where I, I know that people want to, you know, want to, want, to, want to get into it, but to be valuable to a startup company, you have to bring something other than enthusiasm. You have to bring some knowledge. Exactly. I think it's a really important point because in the startup environment, you might not also have a ton of money, let's say for, 
recruiting, you definitely don't have on-the-job training funds. And so you're almost looking at somebody's resume and you're saying, okay, they have had these experiences with these companies. I know these large companies that this person came from had really rigorous recruiting processes of their own. So they had to go through quite a recruiting process to prove their value, to even get in the door of that company. Then they succeeded at that company. That tells you a lot about a person right off the bat. And it saves you a lot of time and trouble as an entrepreneur, as a CEO of a company trying to recruit people. Those are important things. And just to have somebody come in with none of those experiences doesn't get you there. Uh, you're, you're, you're right, Ted. And, and, you know, the other thing is, you know, we, if you work at a large company, you know that there are large companies, there are mid-sized companies, there are small companies. And, you know, we, we, we know that about the industry, you know, they've got different size companies. Well, there's different size startups as well. There's well-funded, I got 50 million in the bank and I've got, you know, a, a six-year product development schedule and, and, and clinicals to get to a whatever product. And then there's companies like mine where what we're doing is a simple device and we're trying to bring, bring that out. And we don't need the clinical trials. We don't need, need the, the, the heavy investment to be able to get there. So you've got different needs with different startups as well. So you can't just say all startups are the same because a well-funded VC backed um, startup is different than what I've got. So what we're doing is we're doing it with a lot less money, a lot less investment, a lot fewer people to be able to do that. But from a resource standpoint, if, if I'm hiring somebody, they've got to do a lot of things and they've got to have, they've got to have knowledge. So it, it, it may not be as critical for the large, well-funded startup, but it is for me. So you really have to understand who you are and what you need along those pathways. And if you're looking to join a startup, you need to understand that too. Where are they? What's their funding source? And what do they need? Now at EM Device Labs or Lab, you have made a lot of progress as you were just alluding to with not a lot of capital. How did you do that? What are some of the things that you did to be able to get as far as you have? Because you're going to launch in about a month, right? Yep. Yeah. So how did you get there in, uh, gosh, five years if you include your advisory period of time and then four years as a leader? How did you do this on such a low capital budget? Well, there's several things in there. One is you're not going to do everything yourself. You're going to be outsourcing a lot of things. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's outsourcing what you know that you can. And, and uh, because people are your are most uh, expensive asset uh, in, in the early, early side of things. So you're really you know, looking for expertise in particular areas. And what I mean by that is we don't have a regulatory, uh, full-time regulatory person. But we've got a regulatory consultant that I've worked with for for close to close to ten years now, and she's excellent. I know I know what to expect uh, from her, and and uh, I, I know what we need. 
I know, you know, I know that we don't need a full-time person. I know exactly what we need in terms of putting a, putting a quality system in place and doing the filings. You know, so I, I know what we need there. So I know that I can out, outsource that. On the product development side, we looked for, you know, we knew what components that we needed to have. We, we designed the product ourselves. But we didn't make the product ourselves. We outsourced that, and we came up with with different different uh, OEMs, different partners that were that were making components for us. And then it's a pay as you go type of thing. But we didn't hire a development firm to uh, to uh, completely design our product. We designed the product, and then we outsourced different pieces pieces of it. So there's uh, some savings there. And then it's, you know, how big is the, uh, is the team? We kept the team extremely small. We've got uh, two ER physicians. Well, they don't need to take a salary. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, employed uh, outside as well. And then, and then when you don't have the money, you go without the salary. Mm-hmm. So that is the other thing about the startup world too. Are you, are you all in or are you partially in? Uh, so there have been periods of time where we said, okay, we want to get to the next milestone. We won't be taking a salary for a period of time. And when I say a period of time, I mean a period of time. So it is not a month. It, you know, it, 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 it can go, go longer. But you, you, you're also looking at what is the long game here? Because every time you go out and raise money, you're giving up equity. So we're all shareholders in the company. If we are giving up a little bit in salary as, as we're going at, the, the objective is to make that down the road. So it's holding on, to, holding on to the equity. But you also have to have the right people that are able to do that because not everyone's able to do that. Um, right, exactly. You, 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 so you have to know what you're getting into. And that's, you know, when we talk to people on the, that are coming to the team, and, you know, you have to be completely transparent, completely honest with them and say, this is, this is what we're doing. We've gone some time without think, without salaries to get to the next, to the next level. And nobody wants to do that. Believe me, nobody wants to do that. But if that's what's necessary, that's what's necessary. Sure. So you look at all of those things. And fortunately, we didn't have to do uh, clinical trials with this device because of the regulatory pathway uh, of it. So that cuts down on, on a lot of the money too. So you have to know exactly what you have and what you need to get to market. Sometimes it's going to require millions of dollars for development and product. Ours didn't. And that's why you're able to, to get there with, with less money. But then you put all these other things on top of it as well. Right. Right. Excellent. Okay. Thank you for that. And then what are some of the key strategic steps you took along the way with EM Device Lab, um, you know, to position it for success? And you had mentioned a few things regarding, um, you know, the product in the marketplace, understanding the need, things like that. Well, I'm going to stop right there and say that is the most important thing. It's, okay. it's understanding the marketplace. And customer validation and, and customer discovery is one of the things that will bite every startup company that doesn't do it properly. Uh, you need to understand your market. You need to understand your product and how it fits within your customer's ecosystem. 
And unless you do, and until you do, you don't even start designing your product. Uh, you really have to understand whether a market exists and whether you can you can solve uh, the problems that the, that that uh, that market has. We've all been there where we get a product, we launch it, and it's a big dud. It just hits hits the floor with a big thud. You know, so what what really that is all about is somebody didn't do their job properly in defining a market and defining your product. So we spent a boatload of time understanding our customer and our market. We've talked to over 600 clinicians in the product discovery process. And this was, you know, th these were clinicians who either we talked to and had interviews with individually or tried our product, about half of them have tried our product and either in cadavers or in simulated models. And we've gotten feedback on anywhere from a particular attribute of the product to the market, to what their pain points are, to what, what uh, pricing sensitivity looks like, to people within buying groups, within supply chain, how should it, how should it be packaged, how should it be boxed, how many per box, uh, what the uh, what the issues are with with um, with ordering a product? So all of those things are part of the product. It's not just the device; it's the product that you're trying trying to market. And we've spent a lot of time doing that. And let me tell you, we're going to be wrong on some things. <laughs> so, <laughs> so everyone who's done customer discovery knows you think you know what you've got. But, but it really all boils down to once you hit the marketplace, is somebody going to take their hard-earned cash and pay for it? And so, so that, but, but all of these things that are described in talking to 600 people will help the, help the probability of success. It won't make it infallible. It's not going to be 100%, but it's going to be a heck of a lot better than if you didn't do those things. And that's one of the problems I think we've got in industry is we always assume that we know, we I know my customers, I've been in this business for a long period of time and we don't double check these things. And then when we get the feedback from the physician or from the supply chain or whoever, we believe it. And you have to dig deeper. Are they really telling me what the, what the, real, what the real deal is? Or are they telling me what I wanna know? Or am I hearing what I wanna hear? So you really have to dig deeper into, am I really getting at the real truth? And, and those are some of the areas that I think all of us in the industry and specifically the audience that we're talking to today, the marketing audience needs to take another look at any time that you're developing either a startup new product or a new product or new offering in an existing company. And my experience, the most difficult thing in an existing company is to go out and talk to a bunch of customers because we think we know, and believe me, we don't. Yeah, that's a really, really good point because if you look at the med tech industry <clears throat> um, or medical device industry, so many of the, of the companies are founded off of a technological drive. So an engineer or a doctor invents something because they see, they see a problem and they see a need and they invent something to fix it. Although it could be within a very limited window of how they have viewed this need that needs to be fixed. And so they talk to a few of their best friends that might be healthcare providers of some sort, 
And those people tend to agree with them because they're all friends. And so they get this feeling that the whole market's going to agree with them. And they could be very, very wrong. I've seen this really backfire in people. Absolutely. And I had experience. We were going to launch a heart valve in the U.S. And there was, there was one heart valve that was out there. St. Jude valve had been out there for a long period of time. And, and we talked to, talked to a bunch of customers. And they said, oh, we can't wait till you guys get here. The company was Carbomedics. We, we can't wait till Carbomedics hits, hits the marketplace because you know, St. Jude has been you know, charging us a whole lot of money for, for this thing. We know that you know, we could, we're really looking for an alternative. We hit the marketplace and it was like crickets. Okay, nothing. Um, and it, it, it all boiled down to you know, the saying in the industry was, you know, people, you know, a, a doctor will change wives before he change, changes heart valves <laughs> because uh, their, their reputation goes, goes with them with every implant. So that type of a decision uh, is, is such a big decision. And, uh, you know, a lot of that talk is just talk. Uh, it, it, you'll never know until you provide that product out in the marketplace and they give you the real feedback, which is, am I buying or not buying? Right. Now, when you and I were talking the other week, you mentioned a, a place where you, you, you thought you had a failure on your hands, um, you know, running a company and what you learned from that. Could you reflect on that? Well, I did have a failure. Uh, yeah. So the last company uh, that I that, uh, did was a company called NeuroChaos. And what we're doing is we're using transcranial Doppler ultrasound to assess traumatic brain injury. And it was a special um, software algorithm that could look at, at uh, cerebral blood flow velocity and um, ascertain whether someone had uh, suffered a TBI um, and also could track to see whether that patient recovered. And uh, so we were applying it to the concussion marketplace and really exciting technology. And what we found is we actually could. We could, we could see when someone was injured and we could track as they recovered. So we were, we were really excited about it. And in the customer discovery stuff that we did, you know, we were talked to all, all kinds of clinicians about this big, big need. Everybody knows you hear a concussion, you know, you know, you know what the issues were uh, and, and, and the need for it, both in the military, sports, you know, big, big need. So we said, okay, we've got that. We know who's going to use it. Well, actually we didn't because in the clinical study of that, what we were assuming is we were assuming that this is a post-injury product. But what it turned out to be is our technology had to have a healthy test, a healthy baseline of that patient before they had their injury. So if you can imagine this, every football player, every, uh, every person in the military, you know, they, they get a test they get an ultrasound of, of their brain. And then if they get injured, then you have something to compare it to. Mm -hmm. And in the case of, you know, hey, I got a concussion. Now we're just going to continue to test them on a daily basis every other day. And you can see that they're approaching their baseline. Now it's safe to go back. That's what the technology was all about. But when we, when we discovered that we had to have that healthy baseline test, well, that took it from a post-injury setting to a pre-injury setting. 
So now we're not marketing to doctors because the doctors only treat injured patients. They don't treat well patients. So now how do you get that in? Well, you're going to market it to schools. Schools can't afford it. A school athletic training budget is less than $10,000 a year. And our test is 75 bucks a pop. So we could not market it to school. So now it's who else do you market it to? Parents. Well, marketing to parents means you have to educate a marketplace on the problem. You have to educate them on your solution. You have to tell them the school's not paying for it. You pay for it. Then you have to get a mechanism for that to occur. And now all of a sudden we go from selling devices to selling service. So we've got to put put that in place. And we've got that other uh, component in marketing to, to the public. So even though we had a technology that worked, and even though we had done our diligence, we had not done our diligence with that particular permutation that we didn't anticipate that we were going to have to have that healthy baseline. When we did find that out, it it kind of sunk us um, because we didn't have the um, the resources, and the market was not um, willing to buy that product at the at the at the at the consumer level. So we had to close the company down. Even though we had a technology that worked, we had to close the company down and it was failed due to business model, not due to product. So that's okay. where, you know, a, kind of a, a story from that needs analysis and from that customer discovery standpoint, even though you think you've done it all well, it changes. I'm a big one that you're you're Medical device is not the same today as it is tomorrow. We discovered that our product was different (laughs) at the the front end. But everyone who who launches a medical device, they launch it without without tremendous amount of clinical data. And then that data comes in later. So the device that you launch today is not the same device that you have a year from now because now you've got clinical data, now you've got key opinion leaders are doing it. So you have to know exactly which device you're launching today and to whom in order to really market it and have the expectations properly because it changes, just like our product changed. Right. Uh, That's a great story and a great learning experience. Painful, painful too. Yeah, it's very painful. Gosh, (laughs) it's never any fun to have something like that happen. Well, it's, it's funny because everyone always talks about their successes, but they don't talk about their failures. And, right. And we all have them. Right. So, you know, in a month, you're going to be preparing for your soft launch of the um, EM Lab device. Anything keeping you awake at night right now? Well, it, it's always about sales, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we, we develop it, we get all excited about it. And what I've been telling telling our investors, telling our team is we're, we're, we're working, working our tails off to get to the starting line. Okay. We're, we're, we're not at the starting line yet. You know, the company's been going, but the starting line is the first day that you start selling. So it, it all comes down. Uh, we've all been fooled. We've been fooled by people who said, yeah, I want it. I want it. I want it. And then when they actually get there, are they going to buy it? Are they going to change? Uh, we, we feel that we've talked to enough people to know that there's a substantial market. We believe that the price point is a good price point. We believe that the, that the, the benefits of the product 
uh, are across multiple different people uh, within within the customer, different customer segments. So we feel good about it, but you're always anxious for that first sale. And the other thing is, you know, when you're in when you're in a startup, you're working so hard to get to that starting line that you don't have time, and FDA will not allow you to pre-sell anything. So you're starting at the starting line from you know a, a dead stop, uh, and then you have to have to start picking it up. And soft launches are there for for a particular reason. I mean, you want to validate everything. You want to validate the product is perfect. Your marketing me- message is perfect. You want to you know all of all of your your uh, uh, educational materials are perfect. So you're trying to trying to do that from a soft launch large standpoint. But what keeps me up right now is we got to finish do the last little bit on the paperwork uh, to to finish that off. That uh, that that's I'm confident we're we'll, we'll get there. It's when sales start. Is the product going to perform? We believe it will, but it's it's the sales. Well, in one way though, you're not starting from a dead stop because you did work with 600 clinicians in the evaluation process, the, the the deep learning process that you described earlier. And you can go back to those people and say, thank you, now we're on the market. I mean, in a way you do have a resource. Um, I mean, still, I agree with you. I'd be nervous as heck about that first order and feel really good when it came <laughs> in. But, but I think you've done some stuff because there are things you can do. For example, I'm working um, with several companies right now. And let's see, uh, three of them are not launching until 2024. And we're talking about early capture of uh, information on innovators and early adopters and, and so on. So, which is pre-marketing, which is legal. You just, you know, you're not selling anything, but you're other than awareness and interest. Yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, we've, we've done that. We've captured the people that we've talked to. We, we know, you know, in our particular instance, it's uh, emergency medicine physicians, uh, so we, we we know who they are, where they reside, and and we'll be uh, you know we we know where you know where we're going to go to first. Uh, but you know, soft launches are there for a reason. You, you you're trying to validate everything, and then you scale it up uh, after after you validated key um, key things that you want to learn. Sure. And as we get around to closing this out, um, I always ask people, you know, do you have any books that you recommend to uh, people that are in this kind of career, you know, whether they're early in the career or moving into leadership positions, is there anything that you recommend? Well, there, there's, there's a couple of books that, that have been instrumental to me. So I, I grew up in Wisconsin and I grew up in Wisconsin in the sixties. Uh, uh, so Ted, can you, can you think of something that uh, that was going on in Wisconsin in, in, in the 60s that was pretty important to a young boy? Oh, <laughs> the Packers? Uh, the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I was, uh, I've been a big uh, football uh, football guy through my life. But uh, David uh, Marinus wrote a book um, uh, back, uh, back about 20 years ago, and it had a, a real impact uh, on me. And it's a book called uh, when Pride Still Mattered, and it was biography of Vince Lombardi. Hmm. And uh, he's written books on Obama and Clinton and, and done you know, Roberto Clemente. So he's written, uh, written some really good biographies. 
But what was really interesting to me is, is not, um, you know, how he did the power sweep or what, uh, what he did on the football field. What was revealing to me is the price of success. And what I mean by that is he was extremely successful in, in getting championships, but it came at a personal cost to him. His marriage was not what it should have been. His relationship with his children was not what it should, should have been. So when I read that, read that book, it, it really um, helped me to understand that being a CEO of a successful company is not the end game. It's to have a well-rounded life. Because you know, I think you know, talk to different people. Oh, Steve Jobs, you know, he's a, he's a great leader, and well, Apple is a great company. But we all have heard the stories about Steve Jobs' personal life, and other people's, you know, that have been extremely successful entrepreneurs. But it comes with the cost of the personal life. I'm not willing to do that. Okay, uh, if 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 you want a CEO who wants to only live, breathe, and uh, and build their company at the, at the detriment of the rest of their life, I'm not your guy. And that's not the type of person that I would want to be associated with. We are here for well-rounded lives. Yes, absolute. We need to be successful in our jobs, but we are not myopic. We cannot make one part of our life so dominant that we have carnage in the rest of our lives. So when I read that book and, and, and you know, one, of my, one of my idols and I saw the cost of success, it really opened my eyes to what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. That's excellent. Well, thank you for that because we're going to have that book in the show notes um, plus a link to your podcast, your LinkedIn profile, the EM Device Lab website and so on. So there'll be a number of things in the show notes for listeners and viewers to to look for. Any other final thoughts that you have for the listeners regarding um, leadership and and personal growth? Well, the first thing that comes to mind, Ted, is that in order to grow, you have to master what you're doing today. So if you want to be a CEO, you're not going to get there by wishing it, it, it occurs. You have to be the best at what you're doing right now. So in order, you know, when, when you're promoting people, you're not promoting people at the bottom, okay? You're promoting people that have achieved things within their current role. So if you, if you want to grow, the first thing you need to do is be successful in what you're doing today. And that, that is the bedrock that, that you build it on. But then you also need to look at uh, how you can promote yourself that this is, you know, I've, I've got aspirations that I want to do something else and not, not be a self-promoter. I think we, we all kind of know that, that, that person. Right. <laughs> that's, that's not somebody that we want to be. But it's a frank discussion to say, this is where I'd like to go. Can you help me get there and, and get your mentors within your company to, to make it known that you, that you want to get there. But it's all, it always starts with, I've got to be the best person that I can in the current role that I'm in. And part of that is understanding everyone else's role in there too. Uh, so to really to, 
to, to allow you to do your job better by getting to know other people in other areas. So I, one of the things, you know, just a simple thing when, when you know, COVID's done and, and uh, we're able to go to cocktail parties and, and, and company functions again, don't hang out with your buddies. Okay, don't just, you know, if you're in a marketing, don't hang with the marketing crowd. Go into a different crowd. Learn what they're doing. Get to know other people. It's, it's a matter of, of, uh, of building a wider community. If you want to grow and if you want to take that next move up the organization, make it your, your, uh, your mission to go out and, and develop those other relationships because at some point in time, those people or those functions may be reporting to you. And if you know them and know their functional area, that will help prepare you for your next step. Great advice. Great advice. Thank you very much. And like I've told a couple other previous guests, and this will especially relate to you, I look forward to interviewing you you again in about a year, um, if not sooner, to find out how the launch went. Uh, no problem, Ted. And keep doing what you're doing. It's a great it's a great service to people within the, within the industry. Love love this podcast. All right. Well, uh, thanks again, Pat. Thanks for being on with us today. Thank you. The important questions are, do you know who you are? And that is as a person and as a company, if you are the leader of a startup or the leader of any organization, do you know who you are? And the other question is, do you know what you don't know? You can tell that many of Pat's actions are taken from not only what he learned in success, but also what he learned in failure. And he has applied that heavily in the area of customer discovery. As your company explores new products or services, are you digging deep enough in the area of customer discovery? Or as you work in your position day in and day out, Are you learning how to really listen to your customer to be sure you're doing all you can do to be a valuable partner? And my final question is, are you mastering what you are doing today? Plenty to think about, even for a consultant like myself. Now, take something from this podcast and go win your week. (laughs) 